Did you know that the television was invented only two years after sliced bread? Yeah, only two years. That's why my kids can't watch Doc McStuffins. This is No Green Eggs and Ham. My name is Sam. And last week, I ended the podcast with uh, a fact about a, a, a Japanese robot that feeds you tomatoes while you're running. A robot that sits on your back like a backpack and feeds you tomatoes. I had since looked more into it to, you know, because I was interested. And I found that, first of all, it, it looks amazing. It doesn't look practical, I could say that, but it's got this, this really creepy face. The head is like a tomato, it's got a mouth open, uh, two beady eyes, and these mechanical arms that hold the tomato up over its head. And, and basically what happens is it's, it's got a chute on the, uh, that runs along the spine of it. And it just it grabs a tomato and brings it up over its own body and places it right in front of your mouth. And you can just bite it. And it's activated by a lever. You press the lever when you're ready for a tomato. And it brings it down and, and gives it to you. So it was invented by a, uh, a company that... It's Japan's largest supplier of tomato juice and tomato ketchup. And I, they, they designed it for marathon runners. There is an actual uh, reasoning behind it. It's, they thought that in order to combat fatigue, um, a runner would need to, to have electrolytes and would have to have uh, nutrition. And they found out that a tomato had far more nutrition than any other fruit is that true i don't know but this is this is what their reasoning was and it it uh, combats fatigue so they're like well we're already in the tomato business let's create a robot that feeds runners tomatoes so i'm going to read a little bit from their uh the website it's automaton automaton.com and uh I, I don't know exactly what it is but it, it has the robot on there uh, again, called the Tomatotan, or tom- Tomata, Tomatan, Tomatan. It didn't go over well. Um, no one bought it. The robot itself weighs 17 and a half pounds. And if you're a marathon runner, you're not, you know, you're not in the military. You're not um, carrying a pack on you. And, and not that 17.5 pounds is anywhere near what someone in the military would have to carry. But even if you carried a camel pack, you know, a water pack on your back, it's nowhere near 17.5 pounds, right? I, I, I don't think it is. And so it just didn't make sense. No one was going to have this. If you look at a picture of it, and I'll, um, I'll put the link to this website, the description of the video or the, uh, the podcast, and it's, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's a small child, really. I mean, it's, it's a good sized child and it's, it's crazy looking. It doesn't look comfortable at all. Like I, I don't, I don't understand how the guy in the picture. Well, you know what? You look at his face and he's like, "This is why am I doing this?" So that makes sense. It also looks like it's tilting a little bit. So I'm like, you know, if it's gonna fall, you're gonna go with it at 17 and a half pounds, running as fast as you can. Here's here's a an excerpt from their their website. When the runner feels like it's time for a nutrient boost, they simply tug a lever in the robot's foot which causes a tomato to pass from the dispensing chute into the robot's hands. Its arms then rotate forward, 
bring the fruit to the runner's mouth. To see it in action, check out the video below. And you can, there's a link, it's a YouTube video. And in fact, if I check right now, because I, I didn't check this before, there is a video and it's it looks kind of cool. This poor guy, he must work for the company. He doesn't look like a marathon runner, I gotta say. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting, you watch it and it's crazy. Like the robot itself looks like it's running because all the parts are moving while you're moving. It actually looks so cool and so awkward at the same time. And the guy's just bowing down on a, <laughs> on a tomato. It's crazy. Oh, and the same guy that... Oh, maybe it's not the same guy. It looks like the same guy that was in the video is presented at a show. At like a big reveal. He's in a suit and he's on a treadmill. And the robot's feeding him a tomato. It's hilarious. Unbelievable. Okay, so... Check it out. Uh, I'll put the link to the website in the description. You can see the little video that, that goes along with it. So this this tomatan did not work out. I can't see even when you see it. It's like I I can't see them having put too much into it as far as investment goes. Um, so hopefully they didn't they didn't lose out on too much. It's quite amazing. Uh, even on the website itself, it has a picture of a guy on a treadmill. He looks like he's a scientist. And he's he's got a necklace of tomatoes on. And I guess it was like, well, you could do this, but why do that when you have a robot? <laughs> and he could feed you. Or it, it can feed you. Okay, so that's a tomatoton or tomaton. And uh, I, I just felt I, I needed to look more into it before I, you know, judged it. But I believe, I think I ended my podcast with like, I think I need one. Unfortunately, they don't have them. And if you were able to find one, you know, either it'd be an astronomical price because only a few made, or it was in a dumpster. And... Okay, with that out of the way, uh, I'm gonna read a a writing prompt uh, or my submission for a writing prompt that I did. And this is something that I assigned, you know, not not really assigned, but I gave out for our artist community Breakwater. And you know, anyone can do whatever they want with it. They can write, they can draw something, they can sing a song, you know, whatever they want to do. But uh, we give out, we give these out every once in a while. Um, either I come up with them or I, I go to Reddit and uh, go to their writing prompts and pick something. Uh, sometimes I, I alter them a, a bit if I find them on Reddit. And that's what I did with this one in particular. This is the writing prompt. A new neighbor has moved in next door. He's a retired candy maker, but that's all you know about him and you have yet to meet. For weeks, several moving trucks have been delivering unmarked boxes into his house, always at night. After several unsuccessful attempts to make contact and welcome him to the neighborhood, you hear a knock on your door. But when you answer, no one is there. Before you go back inside, you see an envelope. Inside is a dinner invitation to your new neighbor's home. It's signed, W. Wonka. And so this is my short story to go along with that writing prompt, and I titled it Dinner with Wonka. I hope you like it. And forgive the the grammar. It's never been edited. These writing prompts are just supposed to be write it down, get it out there, and uh, you know move on kind of thing. It it wasn't meant to to be anything that would that would turn into a project. So there are going to be mistakes. Please forgive them. Why don't you start from the beginning, Mr. Smith? The officer asked Roger as his head was being attended to by the AMT. He had a small gash on the top of his head, but not so serious that it required stitches. Roger sat at the rear of the ambulance, his legs resting on the step used to climb into the back 
and his arms were holding tight to the blanket that was thrown over his shoulders by EMTs when they arrived on the scene. They reached the residence moments before the police and just after the fire department. Roger's eyes remained fixed on the burning house before him, though he couldn't see it. Only the night's events played in front of him like a projector on a screen. His body was shaking, partly from the storm overhead and his lack of shoes, but mostly it came from the shock of what he just went through. The officer spoke up again, this time a bit louder. Mr. Smith? With a blink, Roger snapped out of his daze and looked up in the direction of the voice that brought him back to the present. There were two officers, one holding a pen and a notebook, and the other holding an umbrella to block the rain for all three of the men. The men were staring down at Roger as he turned his head towards them, but both made repeated side glances at the house as though something enticing was vying for their attention. The expressions in their eyes, however, reflected fear and concern. I'm sorry? Roger asked in response, doing his best not to look back at what he knew the officers were having a hard time not staring at themselves. Tell us what happened from the beginning, please. The officer with the pen asked as he brought his focus solely to Roger. A mix of PTSD and terror filled Roger's eyes with such an intensity it sent a shiver through both of the officers that was heightened by the sudden cackle of thunder above. The officer, holding the umbrella, used his free hand to rub his eyes, trying to remove any shock or fear from his expression, regain a semblance of control. Roger looked through the two men as he began with, He invited us to dinner. Us? Asked the officer as he put pen to paper. Who was with you? Is that who's on the ground? Roger looked at the body laying on the grass. The house continued to burn even though several firemen and the rain were fighting against the growing blaze, but the body was outside of the commotion, silent and still, covered in what looked like solid mud. My wife, but that's not her. His eyes seemed to sink further in sadness as he continued. That's our host. It started when we walked up to his front door. My wife, Molly, knocked on the door first as she was most curious to meet our mysterious neighbor. When no one answered, we looked for a buzzer, but no button could be found. Then I knocked on the door with a bit more force than Molly and pressed my ear against the door, hoping to hear footsteps or a voice in response. Still nothing. Our relations started to fade every second we stood without answer on that porch. Honestly, I was pretty upset that we had spent so many months creating theories and intricate backstories about our neighbor and his life as a candy maker. All the places he may have seen or the recipes that he personally came up with anticipating this night for so long only to have our hopes ripped from our hearts like children first finding out there's no santa or a magical fairy that takes their teeth but just as molly started storming off a series of audible clicks and clacks came from behind the door molly ran back up to me faster than i'd ever seen her move and she punched me in the arm and asked how i could let her just leave like that i didn't even notice though because my eyes were glued to the mullish door that played havoc on my emotions and left me wanting when the final lock clicked, there was a short pause before the door finally started to open. As soon as it did, fanfare music came on suddenly. The quality of the sound reminded me of a loudspeaker from the 50s that I'd seen in movies. It had no bass, and it crackled. In the entryway, there was nothing. No one was on the other side, and all we could see was an ordinary hallway that led to a door. Light could be seen coming from under the door, but there were no shadows and no other sounds other than the music that just then shut off with a series of loud pops and cracks. Molly took a step through the doorway and I put my hand on her shoulder. What are you doing? We can't just go in. Of course we can. We were invited. Plus, they opened the door. Molly said as she removed my hand and entered, putting an end to the conversation. I reluctantly followed after her down the hallway, which seemed to go on for longer than it appeared. In fact, it seemed as though every step we took, the door got further away. 
Molly started picking up the pace and I did as well. We went from a light trot to a frantic run. But still, we were no closer to the end of the hall. I glanced behind me just in time to see the entryway slam shut, leaving us in complete darkness, save for the light under the door, but it wasn't enough to improve our vision. This is crazy, I panted. How is this even possible? When will this stop? And that's when it did. As soon as I said the word stop, Molly and I crashed into the door and fell backwards. It was very painful to go from a full sprint to a dead stop. Thankfully, we weren't seriously hurt, yet, and it didn't take us long to compose ourselves. We stood up and faced the new door. I felt for her doorknob, but couldn't find one. Open the door, Molly said annoyed, but I'm fairly certain it was at me and not the situation that just occurred. I can't open the door. There's no handle, I snapped back. Hello. We both screamed out loud. I'm not sure which of us was louder or more girly, but it was close. Also, it went on for longer than it probably should have, but considering we were in the dark, inside an unknown house, and had just spent the past few minutes running as though we were on a magical treadmill, I think it was justified. Roger's breathing got heavier as he became defensive for no reason, and his speech was rapid and tense. The officers looked at each other, shrugged, and looked back at Roger, waiting intently for what happened next. Clearly, they didn't care about the girly scream. Roger realized he got overexcited, so he took a deep breath, composed himself, and continued. The voice came from directly behind us. It had a very unsettling tone, and though it was loud enough to interrupt our conversation, it was quite whisper-like. We couldn't see any features at all, but there was a faint silhouette of a thin man with wide hips and an abnormally large head. It was freaky and definitely didn't help calm us down. Before either of us could speak, or more likely scream, the man's arms moved swiftly upwards and removed the top half of his enormous head. Roger paused to wait for the officers to react, but they stood there motionless and glass-eyed. Roger sighed and moved on. Okay, well, that's what we thought in the moment, but we quickly realized he just removed a top hat from his head, because once he did, the door behind us opened on its own, revealing a massive room filled with exotic plants, shrubs, trees, water fixtures, balloons, statues, and so many beautiful colors. For a moment, the two of us completely forgot about the creep in the top hat and tried to take in our new surroundings. It was far too much to take in, and that was just as well because we honestly should have been more concerned about our host than his dwelling. Welcome to my home, the man said in the same disturbing voice that we heard in the hallway, but louder. We turned to face him, and both of us gasped audibly. He was a sight to see. He was dressed in a shabby, shaggy, velvet, purple suit with matching frock and top hat that he held in one of his outstretched hands. The other hand held what looked like a broken cane that came to a sinister-looking point at the end, like it was a large toothpick used for spearing watermelons to put in a massive martini. He had a tiny bow tie that looked like it was made of someone else's hair, and no shoes, revealing perfectly clean and well-groomed feet, of which the skin tone nowhere nearly matched the tone of his face. His features were even more chilling than his voice and attire. His hair was large on the sides, scraggly in a mix of faded orange and burnt white. The top of his head was greasy and flattened by the hat. His ashen face was wrinkly and as twisted as the wide smile that revealed remarkably white teeth that all came to very sharp points as if filed on purpose. They definitely didn't go with the rest of him. His eyes were uncomfortably wide and dark and sat underneath huge, unkempt brows that matched the hair on his head. Looking back now, that's when we should have left, if we could have. My name is Williford Wonka, but you can call me Willie, or Wonka, or Ford, or Mr. Willie, or Tim Tim. Thank you for coming. We have little to do and much time to do it. 
he said, not moving an inch, but keeping to the awkward pose of arms out, legs straight, and back slightly bent backwards. Molly and I looked at each other, confused, and I replied, Don't you mean much to do and little time to do it? Do I? Maybe it's you. Either way, let's get started. Suddenly, a faint scream came from another room that caused Wonka's smile to broaden even more as he placed his top hat back upon his head and brought his arms back to his sides. His back was still bent slightly. Sounds like the Sounders already. Wonka reached into his front lapel pocket and pulled out a tiny whistle, put it to his thin, dark lips, and played nine eerie notes in quick succession, holding the last one for far too long. After the last note was finished, a large section of grass opened out of the side of a hill, revealing a passageway. Out of the hole came two sets of four tiny people pushing large, human-sized, brown statues on carts. They pushed the carts over to a staircase that led to an ornate door at the top. They positioned a statue on each side of the stairs. The statues themselves were very odd and in weird poses. One was of a woman cowering in fear with her hands in front of her face and her mouth open wide as if screaming. The other was of a man without arms, but the same expression was on the woman. Both of the statues looked as though they had no shoes on. It was hard to tell at first, but the statues looked very familiar. Of course, our host's next statement told us why. Introducing the Saunders. I imagine you know them. They've been your neighbors for quite some time, haven't they? I don't know what was worse. The fact that our friends were turned into bronze statues or that they were carted out by several tiny, orange-faced, green-haired versions of our host. Each one looked like they were groomed and made to look like Wonka, except clad in off-white and without the cane and top hat. They, too, had no shoes on. Molly was the first to speak. What have you done to Matt and Sherry? Why are they bronzed? She shouted. Bronzed? Wonka sounded insulted. My dear lady, they are not bronzed. They are covered in chocolate. Not just any chocolate, but my special, delectable, mouth-watering, teeth-breaking, hard-forming chocolate. It goes on smooth and dries instantly. Now, they have the tremendous honor of being fixtures in my glorious garden. I looked around and realized that there were dozens of other statues of people, all in similar poses, all made of the same chocolate. Realizing that we were about to suffer the same fate as our friends, I thought quickly and asked Wonka, Can we have a tour? I mean... We want to see all that your amazing garden has to offer. Molly looked at me as if I were crazy. Wonka regarded me for a moment, looked down at my shoes and said, Oh, fine fellow, that would be impossible. See, when you enter a house, the polite thing to do is take off your disgusting, germ-ridden shoes, especially before you enter an edible garden. And with that, Wonka played the same horrible tune out of the whistle, and his minions rushed toward us while Wonka screamed with excitement. It was piercing. Before I could react, I had several tiny hands all over me, throwing me to the ground and ripping off my shoes. Apparently, there were many more of his helpers behind us because I was down before the ones of the statues could even get to me. I couldn't see, but I had assumed that Molly was suffering the same. But that wasn't true. I was able to move my head enough to see Molly fighting Wonka with what looked like a large candy cane. She was swinging it wildly at him, screaming a battle cry that I'd never heard before. Minions tried approaching her from each side, but couldn't get close enough, because between the strikes at Wonka, she flailed her legs and swung the cane in every direction. Finally, Wonka ran to the same hole his helpers brought the Sanders out of, and disappeared, the grass door closing behind him. "'Get out, Molly, now!' I shouted before hands covered my mouth. Molly didn't listen. Instead, she ran over to me and kicked punched and beat as many of the minions as she could before they all scattered. 
She reached for my hand and pulled me up. Let's get out of here. We ran to the door we had come through and again found no handle to open it. I kicked it violently, but it wouldn't budge. I looked to the grand staircase that the Saunders were guarding and told Molly to follow me. We gave little thought to the Saunders as we rushed past and up to the door at the top. It seemed locked for a second, but it was just stuck. When it opened, we were in what looked like a dank basement, the exact opposite of the previous room. There were shelves with dusty objects and old books, cans of paint, candy wrappers, and even old lawnmower from the 60s. Look, a window! Molly pointed to a dirty window on the opposite side of the room. I picked up a can of paint on my way over, and without trying to open it by hand first, threw the can, smashing the window to pieces. You go first, I told Molly as I glanced at a figure in the corner of my eye. Wonka came in from behind the bookshelf, followed by a handful of his goons. Go, go! I pushed Molly through the window to the outside, and as I picked up another can and ran full speed towards Wonka. His minions scattered as I threw the can before tackling Wonka through the doorway he just came through. He was tougher than he looked and far more solid than I thought. We wrestled for a while in a room that looked like a lab and had a strong smell of chocolate and blood. That's when I realized we were in the same room that was used to turn his victims into statues. There were large vats, metal tables, and several medieval weapons and torture devices. I will make you one of my pets! Wonka screamed as I hit him over the head with a mallet I was able to reach while he had me pinned to the ground. He was out. I couldn't believe it. I stood up and looked down upon the mess of a man, crumpled on the floor. I was breathing so hard and felt pain all over. I was so relieved that he was down that I forgot that there were still a bunch of his workers still somewhere within this freak house. I tossed the mallet and heard a loud mechanical noise, like a switch being thrown. I looked just in time to see one of the vats falling. I thought it was because of the mallet I had just thrown, but some of his minions were pushing it over. I jumped out of the way as it came crashing down, flowing throughout the room and covering their leader, Wonka. The minions yelled and scrambled quickly, each carrying a weapon, but instead of coming after me, they rushed to help Wonka. They were hacking frantically at the chocolate around him, but they were too late. The chocolate hardened far too quick, as advertised by the maker himself. I admired the dedication at first, but realized that I was still there and that it was probably wise to get out while their attention was clouded. I turned and ran to the room with the window. Before I left, I glanced back in time to see the workers pick up the chocolate Wonka, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw fire climbing the walls. My mallet had hit some burners that caused them to topple over. I continued to the other room and leapt through the window. Molly was nowhere to be seen, but I assumed she ran to our house to call the police. I ran to the front of the house and saw the statue of Wonka laying on the grass but no sign of tiny people anywhere. I walked over to Wonka and looked down. His expression was that of horrified, just like the others. Funny though, because that's not the expression he had before being consumed by the chocolate. As I was pondering that question, the house exploded, throwing me to the ground. And that, officers, is where my story ends. I awoke to the EMT standing over me. The officers stared in awe. They couldn't believe what they had just heard. Then the officer with the pad and paper spoke. Um, well, Mr. Smith, we, uh, I guess we probably will pass this off to the detectives, and they will more than likely have more questions for you, right, Dan? The officer with the umbrella said nothing, but nodded, still staring agape at Roger. So, why don't you go with the EMTs to the hospital and get checked out? We'll go check on your wife and escort her to be with you. And with that, the officers with the pad walked away into the rain. The officer with the umbrella stayed for a moment, staring until his name was called and he ran to be with his partner. 
The EMT who had also heard the story helped Roger up into the ambulance and onto the stretcher, staring widely at him the entire time. Uh, we'll get you to the hospital now, Mr. Smith. You just, you, you lay here. And with that, the EMT jumped from the back and closed the door behind him. Roger laid down and looked up at the ceiling. He sighed deeply, closed his eyes, reached into his pants pocket, and pulled out a small whistle. He put it to his lips and played nine notes in quick succession. And that was Dinner with Wonka. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that it uh, got a little uh, mundane at the end with uh, my voice, but uh, I was I was thirsty. I needed to drink something. If you want to hear these, you know, some more of these stories, let me know. And if not, let me know that too, because I'll, I won't do that. I'll just talk about uh, other things. This was another episode of No Green Eggs and Ham. My name is Sam. Here's another fun fact about Japan. They love watermelons. Um, at least that's what this article said. Uh, in fact, uh, here's a, a quote from them. If you visit a friend, why not take one along? That's a traditional gift for a host in Japan. And that's referring to watermelons. They also have a, a square watermelon in Japan that is only used for decoration. And it's not uh, not edible. I don't actually don't. It doesn't say if it's not edible. They just don't eat it. Maybe it's one of those things that's you know sacred and you don't eat a square watermelon. It also doesn't say if it's different than the other watermelons, other than the fact that it's square. I wonder if it's um, molded that way. You know how you can do manipulation with with plants, which is actually called uh, puktra, puktra. I think is uh, one of the pronunciations for it. And it's the art of uh, manipulating plants as they grow. You, you've seen like the, the, the trees or the plants that are uh, intertwined. They're like wrapped around each other. Uh, I saw a picture of one that this couple did. These two trees that they formed like uh, an abstract human with like uh, the arms were the limbs that reached out. It was pretty cool. But that's, that's, what, that, um, that's what that is. And I was just wondering if maybe that's the same thing with the watermelon. Maybe they manipulate it that way. But uh, again, it's another thing that I didn't do research for before I uh, before I spoke. So um, don't hang me on it and look it up for yourself or chances are I'm going to look it up after this and then tell you next time.